Well, you can find your place in Romans chapter 14. Father, again, I ask you to write your word on the table of our heart. I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would take the word that is described in the Scriptures as a living word, and that, Father, it would come alive in our hearts, that you would give us understanding, and that it would be our desire, Lord, to walk in accordance with this word. Thank you, Father, for Christ, who died for us, was buried and rose again, is coming again. I pray for our missionaries that you would bless them. And Lord, just encourage them where they are, even in the difficult times. We pray for Fernando with this treatment that he will be receiving for the thyroid cancer that will go well and that you provide for Christy as she separated from him as she cares for her mom. Pray for Melly and her sister who had a stroke yesterday that you would use them, Lord, to communicate the word of God to her sister, the knowledge of salvation. For others who are ill, can be with us, weak in their bodies, that, Lord, their inner man would grow stronger and stronger. They grow stronger in spirit, Father. Thank you for the freedoms we have in this country. Pray for those who are in authority over us, that we could live peaceable and godly lives as the scripture says. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that we would have a desire to share the word of God with others, with those who are in need. You give us so many things. I thank you for the offerings we received today, and I pray you use them to help reach out to people who need Christ and help us to cover the needs of this church so that we can grow in the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Father, according to, Lord, the word of God that has the power to do exactly that. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So Romans, just want to look at where we were last week in verse 15 of Romans 14. It says, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. We've spoken a lot about the the law of love in, in, in this chapter. And then he goes on in the next part of verse 15. He says, Do not destroy with food, with your food, the one for whom Christ died. An obvious reference to the strong who believed that they, they could eat meat and the weak believed they, they couldn't eat meat. I emphasized last week the focus really was on destroy. Don't destroy your with food, the one for whom Christ died, your brother. I didn't say too much about the latter phrase, for whom Christ died, but I will now for a bit because I want to tie it to a verse in Second Corinthians. And the phrase there, for whom Christ died, is the language of substitution. And I made this point last week. If Jesus was willing to give up his life, for you. Should you not be willing to give up your right to eat meat or surrender some other liberty that you may have out of sacrificial love for a brother or sister in Christ? So it's really a going from the greater sacrifice, Christ's love, to a sacrifice that, that you and I should have for one another, the surrender of our liberties if need be. And I want to tie it to 2 Corinthians 5.14, especially the latter part. But in 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says this, For the love of Christ compels us. Now, this is not Paul's love for Christ. This is Christ's love for him and Christ's love for, for you and I. He says, The love of Christ, Christ compels us and it particularly compelled him to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus. He says, because we judge this, that if one died for all, 
And the word for there is the preposition uper, and it means in behalf of. If one died in behalf of all. So the one who died is who? Jesus. And who's the all? All. Then he says, then all died. All died. And he died for all that those who should live for him should no longer live for themselves. And here's the connection to Romans 14. But for him who died for them and rose again. And I'll expound on that. Paul assumes the universal provision of the atonement to be true in verse 14. Jesus died for all. Then states his conclusion, the universal condition at the end of the verse, all must be dead. Now there's an alternate interpretation that, that says, well, the latter phrase, all died, means all died in Christ. Like in Romans chapter 6, buried with him in baptism. I don't think that's the case because of the context and many other corresponding verses. So if Christ did not die for all, then the, the argument of Paul here is a non sequitur. It's a statement that does not logically follow from what preceded it. The demonstration that all are dead, according to him, is that Christ died for all. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, in Adam all die. That's spiritual death. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. When he says in Adam all die, that's a, that's a present active tense. People continue to die. They're born, they're, they're dead in their trespass and sin. When he said that if one died for all in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he uses an aorist tense. An aorist tense emphasizes point action, usually in past time, but not always. So it's just saying all died. But Paul says that in Adam all died. In Adam all died. And what's interesting, Paul says he died for all. He died for all the Corinthians. Paul came and preached the gospel to them. I emphasized this before. And he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered first to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins. Again, that's the language of substitution. He died because of our sins, for our sins, but then he added the phrase, according to the scriptures. Now, the New Testament had not been written. So he's, he's obviously re referencing the Old Testament. And I shared this with the, with the group on Wednesday night. What Old Testament scriptures do you think Paul had to mind in mind when he came to the Corinthians and he said, when I came to you, I preached to you, all of you, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. I think it is without doubt Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All, what? We like sheep have gone astray and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Paul preached to the Corinthians when he came to them. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, who is that? Adam. And what is the result? And death through sin. Thus death spread to all men. Right? That's the universal condition of all men. They're born in, in, in their trust, dead in trespass and sin. And then it says, Paul clarifies that because all sinned. I, I mentioned in the class, Sunday school class that I had with a couple that some people, some translations based upon the old Latin text, which says, in whom all sinned. In other words, people say all sinned, all died in Adam. But Paul clarifies this. The correct interpretation is because all sinned. Now, you're born with the sin nature. Nobody's disputing that. You're born sinners. You're strange from God, separated from God. And the only remedy for your sins is Jesus Christ, which Paul gets to in Romans 5.18. He says, therefore, as through one man's offense, who's that? 
Adam, judgment came to all men. God always judges sin, resulting in condemnation, right? And resulting in death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift of God came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now, does that mean that everybody's saved? No, because Paul spends a lot of time in Romans clarifying the doctrine of justification. Only those who put their, what? Faith in Jesus Christ are justified. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There's no question about that. Sin is universal, just as Christ's payment for sin was universal. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should what? Taste death. Now I want you to think about those words, taste death. How do you taste death? That expression indicates that nothing was held back from Jesus in that death experience on the cross. He was separated from the Father. He bore the reproach of men. He suffered pain, agony. He endured the cross. Endured the cross. In other words, that whole experience, he he fully absorbed that experience in his substitutionary sufferings and death in behalf of sinners. He, he, He so loved you. And that's what compelled Paul to just keep pressing on. The love of God controlled him. He had to tell people of this love. Why? He who loves little hasn't been loved much, right? Paul knew how much he was loved. And he wanted to tell other people about the love of Jesus Christ. And that's why I always ask you, when is the last time you've ever done that? Do you ever, ever even go out of the way? Are you ever even willing to bear reproach? to tell somebody the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In absorbing that full death experience, tasting death, as it were. In this very chapter, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, it says, he reconciled the world unto himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, but he has committed unto us the word of of reconciliation. The price was paid by Christ to redeem the worst of sinners. The price was paid to redeem every sinner. And then Paul goes on here in, 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 in verse 19 and speaking about that reconciliation, he goes on and he gives us our message. So here it is again, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye what? Reconciled to God. That's, That's the message we take as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's That's wonderful, isn't it? God is angry with the wicked every day. They abide under the wrath of God. Judgment is near even at the door, so to speak, because life is fragile. And you and I have the wonderful privilege to tell people that God loved them, that God in Christ Jesus reconciled the world unto himself, that he paid the penalty for their sins, but they must be reconciled to God. They must receive that free gift through Jesus Christ. It goes on. For he hath made him to be sin for us, that's your substitution, who knew no sin, he was the the spotless lamb of God, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Beautiful thought, right? That's imputed righteousness. All our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags, Jeremiah 17. We put our faith in Christ, 
who died for our sins, and he imputes and he gives to us a righteousness that we do not possess on our own. It's amazing. Now, what is relative to Romans 14, 15 in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 is the mentioning of Christ's substitutionary death for all and the self-sacrificing response required of the Christian in light of it. They should not be living for themselves, Paul says, their liberties, their comforts, etc., but for him who died and rose again. We're to live for Jesus. So what, so what Paul's saying there in Romans, or in 2 Corinthians 5, that we quoted before, verse 14, he's saying that if Jesus held back nothing in his love for us, then we should hold back nothing for him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, again, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Are you living for yourself? I mean, that's a very simple question. What are you living for? Who are you living for? We're not to live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. Now, that would certainly include the, strong, the stronger Christian who believed he could eat meat. That would certainly include his willingness to forego his liberty in that regard for his weaker and brother and sister in Christ, and not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now just remember this, if you do something for your brother or sister in Christ, who do you really do it for? For Jesus. You're really doing it, doing it out of love for Christ. So if you really truly love the one who died for you, then you should not be living for yourself and claiming your rights but you'd be living for him who gave up everything for you. And I think that's the connection there. Now let's go back to Romans 14, verse 16. Therefore do not let your good be evil spoken of. The Phillips paraphrase, it's not a translation. It paraphrases it this way. You mustn't let something that is right or all right for you to look like an evil practice in somebody else's eyes. So it's the appearance of evil. And I put it under the heading that the strong, the stronger Christian, the mature Christian must be aware that what is not sinful of itself can still have damaging consequences in the life of someone else. That's why I titled the message last week, When Right is What? When Right is Wrong. So he says, don't let your good, you have a liberty, that's a good thing. You can eat all the meat you want to eat. You can eat any, you could eat any kind of meat you want to eat. Or some other liberty that you may have. But he says, don't let it be evil spoken of, and that's a present imperative which means that we're to pay attention to this all the time because the present tense notes, notes continued action. Don't let it be evil spoken of, and actually the word translated into English is blasphemed. Blasphemo. Don't let your good be blasphemed by somebody else. Don't let them speak reproachfully about it. Reproachfully. Roman, or Luke twenty two sixty three. Here's the use of the word. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who struck you? And then it says, And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Same word as in Romans chapter 14, evil spoken of. Now Christians often cite that verse, Don't let your good be evil spoken of as a general principle to live as far as their testimony is concerned. And, and it does have many applications. We certainly wouldn't you know, have any problem with eating meat in front of other people, unless they're Jewish or something like that, but with, typically with other Christians, 
you are mature in a faith that has you know, no, no real significance, but it has many applications in our life. But the context here pertains to that particular situation under discussion. So if the weaker brother saw somebody eating meat, which the weaker brother thought was unclean, remember, it wasn't unclean in itself by its nature, but it's unclean to the one who thinks it's unclean. And if, he, if the weaker brother saw that person eating unclean meat, they would, they would almost view that as a scandal to them and perhaps to others. So that person's good, their right, their liberty would be evil spoken of. And, you know, we just have to be careful about that. Now, the, verse, the next verse takes us to the title of this message, Kingdom Virtues. Kingdom living takes priority over much lesser things. What are you living for, Right? Who are you living for? He says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Are food and drink essential to life? Yes, absolutely. But food and drink should never cause us to forget what matters the most in life. We shouldn't get preoccupied with, with eating and drinking or, or recreation or any of these things to the, to the extent that we forget about what matters most. We eat and drink to live. We should not live to eat and drink. Physical and material things are not the essence of what the kingdom of God is about. That's That's what this verse is saying. And this is the only time in the book of Romans where Paul uses the word kingdom. That kind of surprised me. He uses it in other places. 1 Corinthians 4.20 The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power, right? Now, the kingdom of God is a multifaceted, complex subject That would take a long study in itself to present the truth concerning the kingdom. I looked up one pastor that I know. I like to listen to his sermons. He had 18 sermons on the kingdom of God. So I thought, well, I'll have to wait before I get to that. But briefly in English, when you think of a kingdom, you think of a realm or a territory that's ruled over by a king, a sovereign. Broadly speaking, it is the rule of God over his creation. Rene Lopez, in his commentary on Romans, says, the kingdom may refer to the sphere where only the regenerate exists and where God rules in the lives of believers and the Lord should be ruling in our life. But he goes on to say, yet in the eight times that the expression the kingdom of God occurs in Paul's epistles, 1 Corinthians 4, 20, 6, 9, and 10, 15, 50, Galatians 5, 21, Ephesians 5, 5, Colossians 4.11, 2 Thessalonians 1.5. It is more consistent, he says, to interpret it as a literal future kingdom. But here's the key. The kingdom is yet in the future, but with present operative principles to be fully realized in the future after Christ returns. So McLean makes it clear the thought here fits a future kingdom better than a present one. For surely in the present life, no one can deny the importance of meat and drink, but in the future kingdom, these things will have much lesser significance. Therefore, since the church is to reign in that kingdom, its members should not judge or grieve one another in such matters here and now. So what he called present operative principles, I call kingdom virtues. And the emphasis on the spiritual, not the material. Not the material. But I want to mention this morning that in the millennial kingdom, when Christ rules upon the earth, and that's mentioned in the New Testament, and many of the Old Testament prophets spoke about it and what it will be like. And I can't wait. There will be great material blessings in that future kingdom when Christ comes to rule upon this earth. He takes the throne of David. He assumes the throne of David in Jerusalem 
the Mount of Olives, all those dramatic things happens is split in two. Matter of fact, concerning material blessings, Amos the prophet said that that, that age, that, that millennial age, will be a time of continual harvest. Let me read it to you. Amos 9.13 Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that sows seed, and the mountains will drop sweet wine, and all the hills will melt. And I will bring, bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they will build the way cities and inhabit them. And, and the prophet spoke about Israel coming from all over the world where they have been scattered. And they're going to build their cities and inhabit them. And they will plant vineyards and they're going to drink the wine thereof. And they'll make gardens and they'll eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And here's the key. They will no more be pulled up from their land. The Jews have been dispersed many times by foreign invaders. But there is a time coming when they will be in their land. They will be drawn into their land from all over the earth. And God says they're never going to be dispersed again. I'll plant them in their land. The land that I have given them, saith the Lord. The land promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant which was a, was a real covenant. I can take you and point you to it in the Bible. I can take and point you to the new covenant in the Bible, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant. These are real covenants in the Bible. Joel 3.18 says, will come to pass in that day that the mountains will drop down new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah will flow with waters and a fountain will come forth out of the house of the Lord and will water the valley of Shittim. This has never happened. Never. You can't spiritualize these things and make sense of the texts. Zechariah 14.8, It will be in that day that living waters will go forth from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and winter will it be, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, there will be one Lord and his name one, and his name is going to be Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the greater son of David, sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning. I just want to put a little chart up here. I don't want to get off too far. I'm probably going to do a little series on prophecy after, after the book of Romans, but this is the little chronology of eschatology. So you saw the period of the law prior to the cross, and then you see the, the death of Christ, followed by the resurrection of Jesus. And then you have the inauguration of the church that would have occurred on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2, what we call the, the dispensation of grace. That's the present time. And then it goes all the way, continuing on. There's going to be a seven-year period of interruption of tribulation after the church is raptured, then the thousand-year messianic kingdom. That's when Jesus is going to rule and reign over all the earth. And then after that is going to be the events right here, uh, the second resurrection followed by the second death, and then the eternal order or the eternal state. The eternal state. Wow, that's a lot. I can't wait though, right? I believe the next event is when the rapture of the church occurs and believers go to be with the Lord. But Paul mentioned right, righteousness, joy, or righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are the operative principles that we are to put in our life now in view of the fact that we're going to be inhabitants of the kingdom of God. You know, people struggle with Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, you know, the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, all of those wonderful truths. And they, some say it doesn't apply, you know, to, to believers now. And you know, I, I don't want to get into all of that. But I think the whole point of all those Beatitudes is that Jesus is laying out what kingdom citizens look like. This is what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. Now, we're going to be fully conformed to the image of Christ when we see Jesus, right? We're going to receive new bodies, no longer capable of sin. But that's in the future. But those beatitudes and these operative principles that Paul mentions, they should be evident in our life right now. And when we fail, 
when we're not peacemakers, when we become troublemakers, then we need to confess that, right? And strive for that goal. So what I think Paul's saying here is that righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit are to presently flourish in the hearts of everyone in whom Jesus the King lives. We confess him as Savior and Lord. He is Lord, right? Righteousness is synonymous with holiness. That's a sanctified life. That means a life set apart from sin to God. That's righteousness. This is not referring here in Romans 14, 16 to judicial righteousness, the righteousness which I mentioned before that we receive, the imputed righteousness of Christ when we believe. This is practical righteousness. Peace. What, what is peace? I mean, the whole world talks about peace. Right? I mean, give peace a chance. Remember that song? Back in the days of the Vietnam War and all the turmoil that was going on, everybody, every hippie in America was singing, you know, give peace a chance, and peace signs everywhere, and the world has never known peace, right? And it doesn't know peace right now. But we can have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts in the midst of all the turmoil of the world. And that's what you have to think about. This, we're just passing through. We're just sojourns. This is not our home. We're going to be with the Lord, and then the Lord's going to come, and there's going to be a new kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to come to earth, and then in the eternal state, Present, earth, present heavens and earth are going to be burnt up, dissolved. They're going to melt with fervent heat. And things are going to be completely new. And we're going to be, we're going to be there forever with God in that eternal state, the new Jerusalem. Now, right now, we can get all anxious about all kinds of things. And we do get anxious. But the Bible tells us don't be anxious for anything. But by prayer and supplication, what? With thanksgiving, let the what? Let your request be made known unto God. In other words, you pour out your heart to God. And then he says, the peace of God, the peace of Christ that surpasses all of our understanding will guard our hearts and minds. And I explain this to people. It literally means we'll sit as an umpire in, in your heart and mind and we'll control your thinking just as an umpire is to control a game. And if you don't have that, then you're a mess. Then you turn on the news and you, you read about something, you, or you hear about something, or you read about something, and you get disturbed. What about my children? What about this crazy world? On and on and on and on. What if, what if someone becomes president again? Or... You're out of bounds. Your thoughts are just going crazy. And all they are doing is weighing you down. And you know that. And the peace of Christ is not governing your thought life. Well, what is the worst thing the world could do to you? Take our life? That's actually the best thing in a certain sense because we go to be with Jesus. And that's just far better. And I'm not suggesting anything by that. But if the worst thing can't touch you, then don't worry about the lesser things. God will take care of it all. We do believe he is over all. He rules over all. So righteousness, synonymous with holiness. Peace is living in harmony with others. The Greek word is irene, which we get the English word serene from. Serenity. Peaceful. Calm. It's what you're feeling right now, right? You're peaceful. You're calm. You know God's in control. Joy is the result of righteousness and peace. If you're living a sanctified life set apart to God and, and you're living in peace with God and in harmony with, with one another, then you, you have joy. Listen, I fret once in a while and I've got to bring myself back to Letting Christ control my thoughts. You wonder about the future. What about my children? What about, what about my health? What about my spouse's health? All of these things, they rob you of joy. They, Jesus wants us to have joy right now, presently, even in the midst of all this. And how is that produced? 
You can't produce it yourself. It's the work of the Spirit of God in you. Galatians 5.19 says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. That's not peace. Contentions. That's not harmony. Peace. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, divisions, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, wild parties, and the like. Hope that didn't describe you. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things, those who continually practice these things, and this is evident that this is their way of life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on with the beautiful verse. But the fruit, and it's singular. There's, it's fruit. The fruit is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is manifested in these different ways, Paul says. Love, joy, peace. Just what we read about in Romans 4, 16, 14, 16. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Does that describe you? In your relationship with other people. Love. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. If that describes you in your relationship with other people, even in difficult times, then the Spirit of God is working powerfully in your life. If it doesn't describe you, then the Spirit of God is not working powerfully in your life and your flesh is in control. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit. And you will what? You will not fulfill the lust. That word means longing. Let me give you an example. You know what the longing of the flesh is? You say something bad to me and I'm going to say something bad to you. That's my desire. My natural desire in the flesh is to retaliate wrong for wrong. Word for word. And maybe even go one step above what you said to me. To hurt you more than you hurt me by your words. That's the flesh. That's not the spirit. If you walk in the flesh, you will not fulfill the long suffering of the flesh. The flesh wants to satisfy itself. The spirit's aim is to bring glory to God, to exalt Christ, and to promote unity in your home and in his church in your family, and in his family, the church. Ephesians 4.11, or 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you. Paul, Paul's pouring his heart out there. He's saying, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, striving, fighting to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to tell you something. As a pastor, and I think every pastor would agree with me in this, to disturb or sever the unity of the Spirit in a church grieves the Holy Spirit of God. When we are going through our hard time here with division and discord in this church over stupid things like vaccines and masks, I want to tell you as your pastor, I was deeply grieved. I carried that sorrow in my heart and I poured my heart out to God day and night long that people would wake up and see that this is not just grievous to me, this is grievous to God. It's the same thing in your home. It could be a different issue in your home. Maybe next week it'll be a different issue in the church. Things come and go. 
But Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by your actions. And when we do, make quick confession of that sin and get it right so we could be at peace with God and we could be at peace with one another. I, I do not know how to tell you this any differently. It's clear as could be. It's all over the scripture. Paul goes on in Romans 14 and 18. For he who serves Christ in these things, or in this manner, exemplifying the kingdom virtues of righteousness, peace, joy, love, all of those kingdom virtues, all the Beatitudes, he says is acceptable to God and approved by men. And I like that because many times we can have God's approval and not man's approval, right? Because the world hated Jesus. The natural man doesn't care about your godliness. But it is nice when you have the approval of God by how you're living and the approval of men. When they recognize there's something different about you. That you're not going to fight back. That you're not going to be quick to, to blow your stack. That you're gentle. That you're kind. That you're generous. You can have the approval of God and the approval of men. Not all the time. But a lot of people do recognize that there, there may be something different about you. What is different about you? It's, a, it's also a great blessing when brethren dwell together in unity. So do everything you can not to offend your brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive me if I have offended you. Maybe I've offended you and maybe I am just didn't even know it. Wasn't even aware of it to the extent that you were. Proverbs 18.19 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. Better not to offend them, right? It's hard to gain them back. When you lose somebody because you've offended them, it's hard to gain them back. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. That's a beautiful picture. I, don't, I wish I had time to go into that. They're like the bars of a castle. So he ends, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. Verse 19, first part, to pursue negatively means to seek after and to persecute. In Acts 22, 4, Paul said this concerning his prior life. I persecuted this way, the Christians, to death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women. He says, I persecuted this way. I pursued them. Well, we're not to pursue wrongdoing. We're to seek after the things that make for peace. Just as Paul in his past life diligently pursued and sought after Christians to persecute them, we are to be diligent in seeking after one another to make peace. And he says, and on the things by which we may edify one another. In other words, be a constructive force in the body of Christ, not a destructive force. Build up. That's what this verse is talking about, edifying. All the things that we may edify one another. The ESV, has, I think it has mutual upbuilding. Are you building somebody else up or are you bringing them down? How about here, right here in the church? What do you do to build up somebody in the faith? To strengthen their walk with God? That's what we're to do. We're not to put one another down. What are you doing in your home to edify your children, to build them up in the faith and not put them down? What are you doing to build up your, your wife and not put her down? What are you doing to build up your husband and not putting him down? What are you doing to building, build up the the leaders of the church who hopefully are, are trying to build you up. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. 
So if you're right, and you know you're right, then bear with those who don't, don't understand things, who don't have the same level of maturity, who are not responding the way that they should be responding. We, have a, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what we ought to be doing, all of us. And then he goes on, verse 20, saying that to insist on your rights can harm the church. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Now, Paul is sort of up the ante. Before he says, don't, don't because of your liberty to eat meat, destroy your brother. And now he, now he sort of ups the game here. Don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. That's the church. Don't bring division into the church because you want your rights. You're claiming your rights. For everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. That's a repeated command here in Romans 14. We've already talked about that. It's repeated again for the sake of emphasis. I I put it this way in closing. Don't be a thick skulled Christian. A hard head is evidence of a hard heart. Now we often have thick skulls and it is hard for the truth to get through on the first hearing. And that's why I hardly ever say anything new to you. Because we need repetition, repetition, repetition. That's how we learn. But the only way that the truth is going to get through quickly to you is when you develop by repeated exposure to God's word a sensitive conscience to the Holy Spirit. All the preaching and teaching in the world I do will do you no good. You can go in one ear and out the other that fast if you do not have, by the repeated exposure to the Holy Spirit, developed a conscience that is very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Some of you know parents, some parents, you all have children that, man, they do something wrong and they're like shaking. They've hurt you. They're very sensitive to hurting mommy or daddy. Other kids, it's just like, you know. And you wonder, like, why can't you be like so-and-so, right? When someone consistently does the same thing in opposition to a biblical command, listen to me, if you keep repeating the same behavior in violation of a biblical command, I know that you are not meditating and taking to heart the word of God. I know that. It's evident. You're not processing it. It's going in this ear and out this ear. And I'm wasting my time. Hard heart. Revelation 3.1 To the angel of the church in Sardis. Right. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but are dead. Wow. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I am coming against you. Wow. That's serious. 
That's Jesus speaking. I can't say it any stronger than that. You have the reputation of being live, but you are dead. Dead dead here metaphorically means asleep. You're asleep. You're in a religious stupor. You're walking around in a dream, half in of it, half in it, and half out of it. You're hearing, but not comprehending. You're hearing, but not taking it to heart. But here's the interesting thing. Paul says to this church that's dead, he tells them to repent. They are not dead to the point of being unable to strengthen what remains. That's what he told them. But they are headed for the Lord's judgment if they don't repent. Listen, people are not dead to the point that they're completely unable to comprehend the word of God or or grasp what you're saying. When the word of God is quick and powerful, it can shatter anything. It can get through to anything. And I've seen people come under deep conviction, almost, almost just melt before you by the power of God's word and the conviction of the Spirit of God, calling them to faith in Christ, to forsake their sin and to trust Christ because their eternal destiny is at stake. And it's not a matter of that they can't do that. It's a matter of they won't do that. I will not have this man to be Lord over me. That's the problem. That's the real problem. God help us all to repent of the sin that we need to repent of. Lord, we don't want to suffer the consequences. We take your warning seriously that if we do not repent, you will come against us. And you do that because you chasten those whom you love, just as a father chastens his son. So Lord, help us to take this message to heart. Not to offend our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not to disturb the serenity in the body of Christ. Or in a home. Help us to do the things that make for peace and edify one another. And to live righteous lives, holy lives. And have the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because of our obedience and submission to Him. In Jesus' name, amen.